Welcome to Educate with Dr. Jefferson, the talk show that makes the connections between research, policies, and practitioners that are too often missing from the American education system. Now, here's your host, Dr. Jonathan Jefferson. Good day, listeners. Welcome to Educate with Dr. Jefferson. I am your host, Jonathan Jefferson. You can learn more about me at my show page on TalkZone.com. Today's topic is African-American literature and education. Although Black History Month was instituted to ensure that schools educated all students about the contributions of blacks throughout history, I was only taught about the civil rights movement during my youth. As a graduate student during the early 90s, friends introduced me to African-American literature. I read the likes of James Baldwin, Alex Haley, W.E.B. Du Bois, and the autobiography of Malcolm X. My first guest today continues to play an important role in the sharing of the African-American experience through literature. Janet Chatham Bell is a writer, editor, and independent scholar who has pursued her dream of creating and publishing books since 1986. Her first title, Famous Black Quotations and Some Not So Famous, was self-published that year and later licensed to Warner Books. Since then, she's published nine additional quotation books. The quotations she's identified and compiled have become part of the cultural lexicon and been used in classrooms, books, movies, and television series. A former education consultant for the Indiana Department of Education, Janet has also taught African-American literature at a number of colleges. In 1985 and 1986, New City, Chicago's newspaper of literature and the arts, named her to the Lit 50, Chicago's book world, who really counts. Janet's coming-of-age memoir, The Time and Place That Gave Me Life, published by Indiana University Press in 2007, was called One of the Best Forms of Social History. Janet, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Hey, I'm honored to have you on. Uh, Janet, let's start with your your new essay collection, which is titled Not All Poor People Are Black and Other Things We Need to Think More About. Tell us about this collection. Well, these are a collection of essays over a range of topics. I divided it into three sections, and the thrust of the book is for people to recognize that they have power that they are not using. And I talk about discovering personal power and then seeking spiritual power and then using communal power because we are the change we want to see and we are the final reservoir of power in this country. So instead of our feeling helpless and in despair about things that go on in the country that are definitely not uh, productive for us, we need to utilize our power to do something about it. Okay. And what inspired the title? I mean, all of your titles have are, are certainly catchy, um, but I'm, I'm curious what inspired this particular title. Well, I, I the final essay in the book is called Not All Black People Are Poor and Not All Poor People Are Black because those are common assumptions that a lot of people have. And one of the things I wanted to do with some of the essays in this book is to blow up some of those assumptions that are not accurate. 
And one of them is that all black people are poor and all white people are rich. And so I wrote an essay about that, and then I just used the title of that essay as the uh, part of the title of that essay as the title of the book. And I and I agree with you, and it's such a, a, a powerful message. I, I grew up in a, a Jamaica, Queens, or St. Albans, Queens, New York, and it wasn't until I was in college that I, I learned um, the environment I grew up in, the average income of African Americans was actually higher than that uh, of whites. And that yeah. kind of ex- that, that explained to me at that time that, oh, wow, that would explain why we always appeared to have more you know, than they did. And it just didn't fit the uh, you might see on watching Leave it to Beaver that everybody um, who's white has, you know, the, the home in the suburbs, et cetera, et cetera. So that wasn't my experience growing up. But it wasn't until I was a young adult that um, I actually saw some statistics that showed that in the area I grew up, um, African-Americans, because of holding a lot of service jobs, actually held an edge uh, over their white counterparts. Um, why do you believe that blacks take whites much much too seriously? Well, because of the myths. You know, not only do whites have myths about us, you know, thinking we're criminal and lazy and all of those things. I, somebody said the other day, and I thought this was right on point, nobody accused blacks of being lazy until we stop working for free. Hmm. <laughs> and I thought that was a good one. Um, but whites have assumptions about us, and we also have assumptions about them that aren't true. And one of them is that white, all white people are powerful, and that's not true. All white people are not wealthy. Uh, and going back in history, not all white people had slaves. Only the wealthy whites had slaves because if you owned slaves, you had to have money because they were you had to to pay for them. Mm-hmm. They were commodities. So we have all of these um, assumptions about them, just like they have assumptions about us. And those assumptions lead us into believing that that we need to take them more seriously than we actually do. Most white people are just like us, trying to get by day by day. Period. Mm-hmm. And we look at them and think, well, they can do anything they want because they're white. That's not true. And do you believe that's where the, the term a white privilege comes from? Well, yes, I, I have a lot of problems with that term. I mean, I understand what people are going for when they say that, because what they're trying to convey is that whites, that black people have obstacles in front of them that whites don't have, which is true. Uh, but to say that that um, is a privilege, you know, it's hard to miss something that you've never had. You know what I'm saying? You can't mm-hmm. you can't miss racism if you've never been discriminated against. What o- the only thing I ask of whites is that they acknowledge that blacks do experience racism. What the only and and that doesn't necessarily require being privileged. It just requires being awake. It it really really annoys me when I tell someone about my experience of being the recipient of racism and have that white person tell me I don't believe you. 
I don't believe anybody would do anything like that. That's very annoying. Mm. But now, did... for white people not to notice racism uh, doesn't seem to me to be um, an error on their part. But I do think it's incumbent upon them, and that's why I'm so happy that we're finally talking about racism publicly, because for years we were in denial about it. But it's incumbent upon them now that they know how prevalent racism is to find out more about it, just like we have to research to find out more about our history, as you did when you became a young man. They need to find out more about this rather than being in denial about it and and telling us to shut up about it because they've heard enough and they don't want to hear anymore. No, they need to accept the reality of racism and um, and perhaps not accepting the reality of racism is what people call the privilege of whites. I don't know. Now, do you, I, I really personally, I haven't heard the, uh, you know, shut up, stop talking about it much until after um, President Obama was elected. It was almost as if, okay, you made it to the White House, therefore racism no longer exists. Let's keep it moving. Have you heard? <laughs> uh, <laughs> have you heard uh, a comment such as that? Oh, absolutely. Um, and here, I also have a theory, and I think I talk about it in one of the essays. I'm sure I talk about it in one of the essays, probably The Big White Lie, that um, the racism never went away, but but the fear that white supremacists have that we colored people are going to take over the country uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of the book that Patrick Buchanan wrote called State of Emergency, The Invasion of uh, America by Third World People or something like that is the title of it. And because white people in power are very well aware of the fact that whites will be in a numerical minority within the next 20 years or so. So they are doing everything they can to hold on to their power, and their fear of us colored people taking over was concretized when we and other colored people and some whites got together and elected Barack Obama president. They were like, oh, my God, it's happening faster than we thought. And so they started stirring the racist pot. And the examples set by our elected officials in the Congress of the United States of America, they set an example of disrespecting the president publicly, openly. So that gave every white supremacist in the country permission to break out their latent racism and to, I mean, if the if a if people in Congress don't respect the black president, why should I respect any black person? And a lot of police officers decided to start using black men as target practice. And I think it all came from the people at the top deciding we need to stir the racist pot because we don't want those blacks and Asians and Latinos and young white people to get together and elect another person of color to the White House, or even a woman for that matter, because they've been 
bashing women as well. So they're, they're sowing the seeds of division, and racism is the fastest and quickest way to divide people in this country because it's a part of our history and because they are trying to stave off the cooperation of all of these marginalized groups so that they won't get together and elect another person of color as president. Well, um, that's an interesting um, thought. Um, I do get an overall sense. I agree with you that the the people who are uh, not not just on the fringes, but you know, who are harboring latent racism, have um, certainly been uh, more aggressive. But ultimately, I do still get a sense that uh, the majority of people, irregardless of color, are still more or less positive. And I think that's oh, uh, I one of the yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons he he was uh, President Obama was reelected because ultimately, yeah. I think they get um, individuals who are you know, racist or stereotypical, not only are they in the minority in numbers, but by being so blatant, they take those of us who have goodness in us um, and, and kind of rally us in our own quiet way to do the right thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I agree uh, with you. I, I'm not at all pessimistic. Um, I I see, and especially young people, uh, they have, have had completely different experiences than than people who were born uh, before 1960, and and they're not going to go back to that kind of vicious uh, invective. And I believe social media, the internet, the interconnectedness of the world makes it that much more difficult to lie to young people yes, and tell does. them that this group is that way and this group is another way because they they can see the reality for themselves. So I agree with you that the younger generations are less and less likely to. Um, buy into the nonsense, if uh, for lack of a better way to put it. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. For example, I'm very encouraged, and I think social media had a lot to do with this, at the uh, because you know, police have been killing black men forever. It's not mm-hmm. new, but I'm encouraged by the fact that social media has spread the word so quickly and alerted people who before weren't even aware of this kind of thing. So now the outrage has spread beyond the black community because we've been outraged about it for decades and 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 so I'm very encouraged by that. Okay. Uh, Janet, at this time, we're going to take a short break, but stay tuned. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome back to Educate on Talk Zone. Here's Dr. Jonathan Jefferson. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back to the show and our discussion with our distinguished guest, Janet Chatham Bell. If you'd like to join our conversation, the phone lines are open 888-463-6748. That's 888-463-6748. We're taking your calls on Talk Zone. Uh, Janet, you are having a, a tremendous uh, impact in the world of literature, especially with regards to uh, African American literature. So that's we got the elephant out of the room uh, in the first part of our discussion, but I really want to delve into the literature. So uh, tell us about your first book, 
famous black quotations and some not so famous? Well, back in the 80s, there weren't any books of black quotations on the market. And I was, at the time, I was working as a textbook editor for uh, a book publishing company for elementary and high school textbooks. And I was always, I had for years been collecting quotations by black people because I had taught African American literature and whenever anybody wanted a quotation, they would come to me and ask me if I knew a quotation by this person or if I knew a quotation about that particular subject. And because I had taught literature and I read a lot, I was usually able to find something that they could use. And so I started saving the things that I found, and a friend of mine suggested that I should publish them. And so I checked you know, books in print to see maybe somebody's already done this, but I couldn't find any books of black quotations. Mm-hmm. So I, and and the major publishers weren't interested in in publishing a book like that because they didn't think they could sell it. So I published it myself. And um, a few years later, I published a second one, two small pocket-sized books, and sold over 90,000 copies in, wow. in a period of, of eight years, and at that point, then the major publishers were interested. So I licensed the publishing rights to Warner Books, and they published it, the two of them together, in one volume. And yeah, after uh, that, I excuse me, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, uh, 1980. Today, it's very common to to self publish, but 1986, it was not. So um, I'm just curious, how did you go about pulling that off? Well, because I had been working in book publishing, I knew the routine. I knew what had to be done and what needed to be done. And But it was much, much more expensive then than it is now. And fortunately, um, I had been working for a long time, and I quit my job to do this and mm. um, and use my own money to um, to find a typesetter and and to pay for getting the book printed and bound and and I I was very fortunate because it, they sold like hotcakes. <laughs> I mean mm-hmm. I was I was hoping I could sell them. I I thought there was a need for it, but they sold faster than I had anticipated. I mean I printed five thousand copies in the first printing and um and figured, you know, I could sell these in a couple of years. Well I sold them in six months. Mm-hmm. And um, and kept on. They just kept on selling. That's why I did a second one. And um, so it it went even better than I had anticipated. No, that's excellent. Now, how do you see yourself? How do you see your work fitting into a tradition? And what is it about the essay form that really speaks to you? Well, <clears throat> uh, blacks have been writing essays for a long time. Um, and my favorite writer of all time is James Baldwin. Uh, and I think he is the quintessential essayist. I like his essays better than I do um, any of his other writing. And I quoted him a lot, too, when I was putting my books together because he is so eloquent. And I've also been impressed by the essays of um, Alice Walker, she mm-hmm. is, 
has also written of several collections of essays and and I buy those books and I read them. I've just always been more interested in nonfiction than in fiction. And okay. so they have been my uh role model so to speak. Okay. Now now would you consider today's bloggers modern essayists? Yes. Yes. As a matter of fact, uh, a few of the essays in my collection started out as blog entries. Yes. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, the first I, I heard of this as a possibility, and I, I poo-pooed it. I'm no longer poo-pooing it. But <laughs> a friend of mine, a friend of mine who who edits my blogs before I I post them, said I ought to keep a uh, keep keep them as a collection, and in the future, uh, publish them as a set. And I thought, oh, who does that? And then, of course, as I get more educated uh, about uh, about your work and others, I realized he knew exactly what he was talking about. Yes, you, he he gave you good advice. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, now let's go, let's go back, uh, into your history. Now, what challenges did you face when working to bring multiculturalism to an American literature textbook? Well, that was, um, a really informative experience. I was hired specifically to help them find, uh, literature selections, uh, from blacks and Hispanics and Native Americans and Asians. And I just decided on my own to add women to that because the books didn't have very many women writers either. Mm-hmm. And um, and so the president of the company hired me specifically for that position, but the people that I was working with often disagreed with the choices that I made. For example, uh, they were not opposed to including something from Frederick Douglass's narrative, but they wanted to include the story about the slave master's wife starting to teach Douglass how to read. And I wanted to include the excerpt where a slave breaker was trying to beat Douglass into submission and he refused to be beaten into submission. That was the, the one that I wanted to use. And... um they didn't care for that so much. And in one occasion, they told me uh, <clears throat> to stop arguing about the selection because I had been outvoted because I was in a, a working team of four mm-hmm. people, three of which were white males and me. And I told them I had not been outvoted because all of them had the same viewpoint and I was representing uh, people of color, women, and young people, mm-hmm. uh, because they were older than I was. <laughs> and and um, so I got what I wanted because Great. I, was, I was not outvoted. And, and I had to be very insistent from time to time because I was working with people who were educated people, but with the educational system that we have in this country, you don't learn and your <clears throat> school books, everything, you don't learn very much about certain people in our society. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of black writers that I presented to them. They had no idea who they were. They knew a couple of black writers like Richard Wright and Langston Hughes, but they didn't know anything about Margaret Walker. They didn't even know who Toni Morrison was. Mm-hmm. And so I had to educate them. 
And fortunately, while I was working there, uh, like I said, I had introduced them to Toni Morrison, and but they didn't think she was an important enough writer to go in their American literature textbook. And while we were working on that textbook, uh, Newsweek magazine had her on the cover talking about <laughs> uh, what a fabulous writer she was. And so I was so happy to see that because I knew that my word didn't mean much to them. But I, I knew if they saw Newsweek magazine talking about her that they would be impressed. And they were. Now, how did you gain the fortitude? Like, what is it in your background that gave you the the courage uh, to to take on these challenges on your own. I mean, like you just mentioned, you're the only one in a room representing uh, such a broad from you know women, Americans, uh, youth. You know what? Where did you gain that? Well, you know, my father was a remarkable man who only completed the fourth grade because he his family were sh- working as sharecroppers, and so as soon as he was big enough to do some work in the field, he was taken out of school. But my father was a man who knew who he was, no matter how other people defined him. And I remember him saying more than once that he never allowed any employer to walk over him because he said, I was looking for a job when I found this one, and I can look for another one. And I that always impressed me because I thought, here I am with an education, and if my father felt that way, if he had that kind of courage and fortitude and he had not been beyond the fourth grade, then mm-hmm. there was no way I was going to be walked over when I had a bachelor's degree. <laughs> mm. so, so, yeah, he was my role model in terms of that kind of thing. He invented himself into a man of substance despite his origin and his upbringing as working uh, uh, for as a sharecropping uh, mm-hmm. tenant, and okay. so he was, he was who I looked up to, and I have a tribute to him included in the book too. Excellent. Um, we only have a couple of minutes left, but I definitely want to uh, hear what your thinking is about the concept of Black History Month. Well, you know, uh, of course. I would hope and pray that we would teach black history through the history of, of black people throughout the curriculum. Mm-hmm. But it hasn't happened. It didn't happen when I was growing up. It didn't happen while my nieces and nephews are growing up or when my son was growing up. There was always uh, scant attention given to that, so I had to teach my son black history at home. So if we have to, in order to get focus on our history, if it has to be a month set aside to do that, then I think that's better than nothing at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish that history w- would be the full story, but it hasn't been and doesn't look like it ever will be unless you know somebody else takes over than the people who have been doing it now. But... Um, The good news is, like you said about the Internet, is that people have so many places they can go to get information now, easily get information, that Mm -hmm. anybody who really wants to know black history can do the research and learn all they want to know. But having 
uh, focus on it for a month is better than nothing. Otherwise, okay. we might get totally swept under the rug. Yeah, actually, it, it, I believe it grew from a week or two to a month. Yeah, um, it did start with just a week. I remember mm-hmm. when it was only a week. Negro History Week. Mm. Okay. We have been speaking with Janet Chatham Bell, writer, editor, and independent scholar. Janet, where can listeners go to learn more about you and to purchase your books? They can go to my website, JanetCheathamBell.com, and they can learn more about me and purchase my books there. And my books are also available at bookstores everywhere and online. Excellent. Janet, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Stay tuned because my next guest offers valuable insight regarding effectively teaching African-American males. 